This is section 47 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 151, Mark Twain, Mugwumps. The Republican presidential nomination of James G. Blaine resulted in a political revolt such as the nation had not known. Blaine was immensely popular, but he had many enemies in his own party. There were strong suspicions of his being connected with doubtful financiering enterprises more or less sensitive to official influence, and while these scandals had become quieted, a very large portion of the Republican constituency refused to believe them unjustified. What might be termed the intellectual element of republicanism was against Blaine. George William Curtis, Charles Dudley Warner, James Russell Lowell, Henry Ward Beecher, Thomas Nast, the firm of Harper and Brothers, Joseph W. Hawley, Joseph Twitchell, Mark Twain. In fact, the majority of thinking men who held principle above party in their choice. On the day of the Chicago nomination, Henry C. Robinson, Charles E. Perkins, Edward M. Bunsey, F. G. Whitmore, and Samuel C. Dunham were collected with Mark Twain in his billiard-room, taking turns at the game and discussing the political situation, with George, the colored butler, at the telephone downstairs to report the returns as they came in. As fast as the ballot was received at the political headquarters downtown, it was telephoned up to the house, and George reported it through the speaking-tube. The opposition to Blaine in the convention was so strong that no one of the assembled players seriously expected his nomination. What was their amazement, then, when, about mid-afternoon, George suddenly announced through the speaking-tube that Blaine was the nominee? The butts of the billiard cues came down on the floor with a bump, and for a moment the players were speechless. Then Henry Robinson said, "'It's hard luck to have to vote for that man.' Clemens looked at him under his heavy brows. "'But we don't have to vote for him,' he said. "'Do you mean to say that you're not going to vote for him?' "'Yes, that is what I mean to say. I am not going to vote for him.' There was a general protest. Most of those assembled declared that when a party's representatives chose a man, one must stand by him. They might choose unwisely, but the party support must be maintained. Clemens said, No party holds the privilege of dictating to me how I shall vote. If loyalty to party is a form of patriotism, I am no patriot. If there is any valuable difference between a monarchist and an American, it lies in the theory that the American can decide for himself what is patriotic and what isn't. I claim that difference. I am the only person in the sixty millions that is privileged to dictate my patriotism. There was a good deal of talk back and forth, and, in the end, most of those there present remained loyal to Blaine. General Hawley and his paper stood by Blaine. Warner withdrew from his editorship of the Courant and remained neutral. Twitchell stood with Clemens and came near losing his pulpit by it. 
open letters were published in the newspapers about him it was a campaign when politics divided neighbors families and congregations if we accept the civil war period there never had been a more rancorous political warfare than that waged between the parties of james g blaine and grover cleveland in 1884 that howells remained true to blaine was a grief to clemens he had gone to the farm with howells on his political conscience and had written fervent and imploring letters on the subject as late as september seventeenth he said somehow i can't seem to rest quiet under the idea of your voting for blaine i believe you said something about the country and the party certainly allegiance to these is well but certainly a man's first duty is to his own conscience and honor the party and country come second to that and never first i don't ask you to vote at all i only urge you not to soil yourself by voting for blaine don't be offended i mean no offense i am not concerned about the rest of the nation but well good-bye yours ever mark beyond his prayerful letters to howells clemens did not greatly concern himself with politics on the farm but returning to hartford he went vigorously into the campaign presided as usual at mass meetings and made political speeches which invited the laughter of both parties and were universally quoted and printed without regard to the paper's convictions it was during one such speech as this that in the course of his remarks a band outside came marching by playing patriotic music so loudly as to drown his voice he waited till the band got by but by the time he was well under way again another band passed and once more he was obliged to wait till the music died away in the distance then he said quite serenely you will find my speech without the music in the morning paper in introducing carl schurz at a great mugwump mass meeting at hartford october twentieth eighteen eighty four he remarked that he clemens was the only legitimately elected officer and was expected to read a long list of vice-presidents but he had forgotten all about it and he would ask all the gentlemen there of whatever political complexion to do him a great favor by acting as vice-presidents then he said as far as my own political change of heart is concerned i have not been convinced by any democratic means the opinion i hold of mr blaine is due to the comments of the republican press before the nomination not that they have said bitter or scandalous things because republican papers are above that but the things they said did not seem to be complimentary and seemed to me to imply editorial disapproval of mr blaine and the belief that he was not qualified to be president of the united states it is just a little 
indelicate for me to be here on this occasion before an assemblage of voters for the reason that the ablest newspaper in Colorado, the ablest newspaper in the world, has recently nominated me for president. It is hardly fit for me to preside at a discussion of the brother candidate, but the best among us will do the most repulsive things the moment we are smitten with a presidential madness. If I had realized that this canvas was to turn on the candidate's private character, I would have started that Colorado paper sooner. I know the crimes that can be imputed and proved against me can be told on the fingers of your hands. This cannot be said of any other presidential candidate in the field. Inasmuch as the Blaine-Cleveland campaign was essentially a campaign of scurrility, this touch was loudly applauded. Mark Twain voted for Grover Cleveland, though up to the very eve of the election he was ready to support a Republican nominee in whom he had faith, preferably Edmonds, and he tried to inaugurate a movement by which Edmonds might be nominated as a surprise candidate and sweep the country. It was probably Dr. Burchard's ill-advised utterance concerning the three alleged R's of democracy, rum, Romanism, and rebellion, that defeated Blaine, and by some strange occult means Mark Twain's butler George got wind of this damning speech before it became news on the streets of Hartford. George had gone with his party, and had a considerable sum of money wagered on Blaine's election, but he knew it was likely to be very close, and he had an instant and deep conviction that these three fatal words, and Blaine's failure to repudiate them, meant the candidate's downfall. He immediately abandoned everything in the shape of household duties, and within the briefest possible time had changed enough money to make him safe and leave him a good margin of winnings besides, in the event of Blaine's defeat. This was evening. A very little later the news of Blaine's blunder, announced from the Opera House stage, was like the explosion of a bomb. But it was no news to George, who went home rejoicing with his enemies. End of chapter 151 Mark Twain Mugwumps Read by John Greenman